This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. You better take that seat, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Well, what a lovely warm welcome. Yes, lovely warm welcome. Indeed. Ah, and now, they're all going to come and see me in my happy hour show at the, <laughs> uh, the Pleasant Strand, oh. aren't they? <laughs> Plugging already, I Oh, yes, you've got to plug <laughs> So I'm here. I'm, I'm here. To, I'm here to plug the book. Oh, oh. gosh, this microphone's a bit over the top, isn't it? No, I can hear you, Hen, but what about the people at the back? Um, is, it, is it a bit too too uh, too strong? No, I no, think right, fine. all right, fine, okay. But they'll soon tell us if they don't like it. Yes, so. they will. Well, they'll leave, won't they? They certainly will. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, very much welcome to an hour, another happy hour with Nicholas Parsons. And I should say that this event is being sponsored by Rathbone's Investment Management. We, we are very grateful to them for their generous uh, aid and also that they're bringing some guests along tonight with them. So I'm sure we're all going to get a very merry in the company of Mr. Nicholas Parsons, who comes to us with his autobiography, My Life in Comedy. Well, I called it memoirs, actually, Al, Oh, memoirs. Because I did prefer. an autobiography back in the early mm. 90s. Okay. So they wanted something mm. else mainstreamed in. And I must say, I've had lovely publishers. They, they've been absolutely wonderful. Very tolerant, because I kept getting behind on the delivery dates. Um, mm. But, no, we, we've called it memoirs. Right. Because okay. I had to reprise things I had written, in uh, mm. some of it, in the previous book. But most of it's new. But that was a long time ago, and you've a done such a lot ago. since then. I've done such you? a lot since. <laughs> In fact, you never stop, do you? I mean, no, you... no, you've got to keep going, otherwise they think you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> so this urge to perform came at a very early age, yes. I see, from when you were five. It's in the book. Um, mm -hmm. uh, when I, <laughs> I was taken to the circus by my, 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 my parents to see the circus in Grantham in Lincolnshire when I was born. And I was absolutely carried away with the whole atmosphere of the performance. And uh, I desperately wanted to do the thing where the fellow jumps on and off that horse that goes round and does acrobats, because I was a, a bit of a tumbler in those days. And there were two, um, there were two um, clowns there called Cuckoo and Sparrow. And when we came back, and they had a little sort of routine Cuckoo and Sparrow did, and one of them used to say, Cuckoo, Sparrow, and that's not all I remember, actually, but um, uh, and, and I, when I got back to the house, I started doing this with my brother, saying, cuckoo, sparrow, and I went on for ages until my mother got so impatient, said, if you don't stop that, she didn't swear, of course, she said, if you don't stop that ridiculous nonsense, you're going to have to go up and stay in your bedroom, and I won't have any supper at all. And, no, no, she was quite strict, my mother was. <laughs> but she, I mean, I, they, they, they encouraged me when I was young to perform, mm. but once she thought I was wanted to do it seriously mm. and become a professional actor, she was horrified. Mm. Oh, no, you're not going at that profession. And all the, all the based and debauched and degraded, and someone as weak and ineffectual as you will finish up as an alcoholic pervert in the gutter. <laughs> mind, well, you, mind you, she didn't have a Scottish accent. I don't know why I put it on <laughs> It just fitted. Mm. Well, one out of three is mm. not bad, really, in her mm. predictions, would you say? I beg your pardon. Huh? <laughs> alcoholic, no, pervert, no, I don't. Gutter. Not alcoholic, gutter. You think I'm a pervert, do you? Well, <laughs> it's just the way you're looking at me at the moment, Nicholas. Mm. Oh, come off it, Al. <laughs> now, you're I must say, I did make a very awful faux pas today in my show because oh. I, <clears throat> I was uh, I, I work quite a lot on cruise ships now, and uh, I said mm. I've been I've been doing a lot of cruising up here. <laughs> and, and of course, for those in the know, it means something quite different. <laughs> quite different. Which uh, won't go and into. I think there are people in Edinburgh who cruise at night. I don't know. <laughs> well, who knows? Mm. Who knows? Mm. Now, you came from a medical background. Your father was a doctor. My father. Yes, there are actually a lot of doctors, and mostly mm. doctors and vicars in my family, mm. uh, going back a quite a long way. Mm. And it was thought that maybe I would get a profession and get a proper job and probably become another doctor. And um, I didn't want to do medicine at all. I saw the stresses my father had, who had a practice. In those days, there wasn't National Health Service, so uh, doctors actually bought their practices. Mm. And he worked extremely hard, so we didn't see an awful lot of him, but he was a lovely, sweet, gentle man. In fact, his patients adored him. He was a, he was a wonderful mm. family doctor, I can see that. Where is this going? Well, I was going to ask, 
Did your parents survive to see how well you'd done in oh, your chosen yes. profession? Oh, yes. Yes, she did. My mother was the, the she, she was the sort of authority in the house. She, she really did everything to stop me. And, um, but of course, you see, they said to me, unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, in order to make me see sense, because I wanted to be an actor. And, um, and the war started, and I was just about 16. And uh, they took me away from school. And I'd done rather well, actually, at school. I'd certainly done well sportingly, because I'm a great sports person. But um, I'd become top of the class. But you see, parents never went to the schools then. You know, the, the, the school kept the parents at a distance. I mean, it's only when I had my children, we used to have parents, um, um, uh, teacher meetings and everything. Mm -hmm. And so um, they didn't know how well I'd done. And so the war started. And my father was badly hit financially. All his patients evacuated because they're now living in a quite expensive part of the world in Hampstead in North London. Very smart it was. Very smart. And, um, and, uh, and so uh, my brother had already got a commission, for, a commission, a position from school to work in Derby at Rolls-Royce. My younger sister was sent away, uh, evacuated with the school. And I should have been evacuated with my school, which was St. Paul's, by the way. It's a wonderful school. And um, they took me away. I went to some ghastly little college in North London, a place open during the war. I got my matric, which was an equivalent to sort of O levels, and I did it with distinction, so I was equivalent to A levels. And at 16, I was eligible to go to university. And do you know, I can't believe it till they say, my parents said, What are you going to do? And I said, Well, I mean, you know, do you know, I don't you know what I'd love to do. I said, I'd love to go back to school. And they said, No, seriously, not at all. What are you going to do? And I said, Well, you know, there's only one thing I've ever wanted to do I want to be an actor. And my father was very succinct. He said, yes, we know all about that, but let's be serious. <laughs> and um, my mother said, you're not going into that disgusting profession. And the uh, theater. Mm -hmm. And I said to her one day, many years later, I said, mother, I don't understand why you have this attitude to people in the theater. She always called it the theater, because that's really what, there wasn't show business or thing like that. No television, a little bit of radio. And um, I said, do you think all the people, I said, I had you, you admire people like Laurence Olivier and Edith Evans and Sybil Thorndike and all those wonderful people. I said, do you think they're all like the people you describe? And she thought for a moment, she said, no. But isn't it a pity they have to work with those sort of people? <laughs> <laughs> so I knew I wasn't going to win. No, quite. So the next thing I knew was my uncle took a hand. I've always been very capable of my hands, making things, repairing things. I've got clocks which I've repaired. I've still got them. And um, she said, why did you become an engineer? Well, if I wasn't going to be an actor, I didn't give a damn what I did. And the next thing I know, to cut a long story short, they got in touch with relations in, uh, in Scotland, mm -hmm. and they fixed up with me to start an engineering apprenticeship on Clydebank, mm -hmm. a firm that made pumps called Drysdales. And the next thing I knew, it was 1940, uh, the it was still the phony war, they hadn't started all bombing them. Yeah. I was on a train going up to Glasgow, just over 16 years of age, mm -hmm. to begin an engineering apprenticeship on Clydebank. And I arrived there, and in those days, I come from English public school, you know, I talked very much more like that than we do today. <laughs> in fact, if you see me in some of the early films I was in, I was in, talking exactly like that. In fact, most people in the film were talking like that as well. <laughs> and I arrived on Clydebank with all these rough, tough fellows mm -hmm. talking, hey, hello, what are we doing today? <laughs> and I asked, uh, where should we go? And, and, and I suppose one of the few things I'm proud of, which I've mentioned in the mm. book, I must mention the book because it's here to plug it. Yes. And the, <laughs> I, I survived. I mean, somehow I made a relationship. I made, mm. Maybe it's that if you instinctively, if you treat other people as they are, they treat you as they are. But, but I, I, I made, they became my mates. I mean, to begin with, they didn't know what to make of it. I'm, mm. They may have been strange to me, but I was a real oddball to them. And when I arrived, they said, hey, we've got to tell you, I mean, you come up here with that war, war, accident. Yes, but, well, this is life here. Let's live it. This is what I said about it. I'm telling you, oh, no. we'll teach you who to get your effing horns at you. By the time you leave, you know, you'll be on my own. You're just mucking you. You're okay, you know, you make a laugh and all that. But by the time you do, it's a very eager job. And they were lovely chaps. They really were. <laughs> And I did become one of their mates, mm. and uh, it was actually, I only realized when I wrote the autobiography, in one sense, I was lucky. Mm. It was an incredible learning for life. I learned, I mean, I went from one side of the social spectrum to the other, and I learned how to live and understand these folks and fellows. And um, 
it, it was very, it was, it was like my finishing school in a way. <laughs> it, it did nearly finish me, but I, 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 I And did it prepare you for a life in the theatre, do you think? No. The, 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 I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt. Not at all. It's so dogmatic. <laughs> but the thing was, I mean, remember my parents sending me away to Glasgow to knock any idea of show business out of my head. But of course, Glasgow's a great place for the entertainment. They have a great love of the arts and the theatre. And uh, so I immediately got in touch with the Amateur Dramatic Society. I said, add drams. I formed a little concert party doing impersonations and stand-up comedy. I used to go around entertaining the troops on the ACAC sites, because Scottish Command Troop Entertainments had a, a system. Oh, wait, someone sneezed. I didn't <laughs> don't Bless usually, you. Don't usually have that effect. And, uh, <coughs> and, um, and then um, there was an amazing woman called Molly S. Urquhart, who had a wee theatre in Rutherglen. And you remember? Did somebody know it rather good? Yes, yeah. And uh, Molly, who uh, was quite well, but we used to rehearse every evening one week and play every evening the next. And uh, it was a great experience. I was getting work in the theatre as an actor. I'd rush back from the works, you know, rush up to the digs, get myself cleaned up, get off the bile shoe, get on the things, get on the tram, down to Rutherham, do the show, and then somehow get back and get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and work. I don't know how I did it, but I did it. I mean, for those of you who know Glasgow and Rutherglen, one of the actors who used to do this was a schoolmaster called um, Duncan McRae. And then Duncan then became a full professional later when the Glasgow Citizen started and called himself John McRae. No, I'm sorry, I'm, his name the was John McRae. Other way around. I knew him as John, John McRae, J.D.G. McRae. And then he changed his name to his second name, Duncan McRae. And uh, he was actually a bit of a mentor to me. He was, he, he, he was, so unknowledgeable about acting and the emotions of acting. I learned a great deal. And from Molly. In fact, her son, bless his heart, came to see my show today in, in, in Edinburgh. I'm in Edinburgh, aren't I? I forgot that. You I, are, I, yes. And uh, don't you forget it. I'm doing so mm. much when I'm up here. Because <laughs> I'm doing just a minute mm. and my own show and everything else. And I'm promoting a book as well. Mm. And um, <laughs> Which book is that, Nicholas? I don't know. <laughs> I think it's memoirs. Memoirs. Not, Not a autobiography. But tell me, I mean, did, it was at that time that you actually played the Glasgow Empire, and for somebody right, yes. who's English, you actually went down rather well, which is well, unheard of. Well, I was lucky because, you see, I, I became a Carol Levis discovery. Do you remember the great discovery man of the period, Carol Levis? You're old enough to remember. I know you keep nodding everything I say, right. And um, I went to the Glasgow Empire, and it did require tremendous courage because some um, you know, my parents were still saying, don't get any ideas of becoming an actor. And I had to overcome this and go to the and ask to have an audition. And I had a pretty bad stutter when I was young. And I always found when I walked on a stage to do anything, it eased, it went, which made me sure that that was my natural milieu where I needed to work. And, but I went to the stage door of the Glasgow Empire, asked to see Carol Levis. His manager came out. And I said, uh, when I got very nervous and tense, the stutter got worse. And I said, I'm coming, I, 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 oh dear, I'm sorry. Can I do an, 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 an audition? And, uh, and he said, well, what? No, he didn't, he didn't. Sorry, <laughs> no, no. Um, he said, what do you do? And I said, I do imp 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 impersonations. <laughs> and I'm not joking. He actually said to me, who do you impersonate? People with impediments. <laughs> But, but Carol was wonderful. He used to see everybody. I went on, did my impersonations. He gave me my first professional broadcast. I had to travel down to London. It was Carol Levis carries on at midday. And I was at the Paris studio in Lower Regent Street. Oh, it's so exciting. I got three guineas. Mm -hmm. Anybody know what guineas are? Oh, you're old enough to know it. I have to say that sometimes they get young people in the audience and they, they think it's guinea fowls or something. <laughs> and, no, uh, Hmm? Your impressions were James Stewart and Charles Boyer. Charles Boyer, Can yes. you give us either of those gentlemen? I haven't done them for 50 years. Oh. Uh, <laughs> James Stewart, I'll, I'll try. And he, he yeah. said, oh, no, no, listen, I, I just got to try you. He was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Do you remember that film? He was in that part. Yeah. Uh, and I, I used to do it. James Stewart, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just a very, very difficult thing to say. But, I, I, you know, it's all very well now for you to ask me to do these things. But I, 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 I haven't practiced them for about 40 years, 50 years. I, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful life, almost. To you, the you asked mm -hmm. about working at the Glasgow. Mm -hmm. I was lucky because, you see, 
And I was down and doing my apprenticeship, and I was mm. working in the pattern shop then. They, they were lovely fellows. I really were. They were my mates, and they treated me as one of their mates. And I'm very flattered by that. And I didn't want, because you know, I was already a radio military service, and that was now a reserved occupation, very important war work, pumps and turbines and things. And uh, I thought, I better not let them know I'm working at the Glasgow Empire when I'm doing important war work. So I changed my name. And I called myself Nick Marlowe. Wasn't very sort of inspirational. I know I was impressed with um, uh, the, um, what's his name's um, books? Raymond Chandler. Thank you very much. I wanted some help there. And, um, <coughs> That's why I'm here. But the, um, the thing was that uh, I, I just kept, because I didn't want the works manager, who was a real tough martinet, to know this. And so, uh, but I remember after about the second night there, one of my workmates came and I said, Hey, Nick, I see you're at the Garcia Empire this week. I said, Yes, I've been keeping quiet about it. I don't want, I want Mr. Russell to know. Oh, he said, No, no, I mean, one of our mates goes there. We've got to come along and give you the big horn. You're the big, <laughs> you're know, the big horn. Right. And I said, Well, that's very kind of you. He said, No, 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 I'll tell you what, I'll do a wee round robin and I'll come mm. back again and I'll let you know how many tickets we want. Second house Friday, right? So he came back a bit later. He said, Get 45 seats for a start. <laughs> And I'd forgotten, you see, came to the second house Friday, I went out, Carol introduced me, I did, and I was getting the most fantastic reception you've ever had. <laughs> and, there was, and at the end, I used to say, I thought I must say, I said, I, my, I used to finish on an impersonation of Winston Churchill. I said, I'd like to dedicate this last impersonation to all of my friends on Clydebank. And then for some reason, they all started shouting out the names of the people of the firm that I impersonated. Hey, Gareth Wally Washington. Hey, give a shout call. Gareth Jock Cunningham. Go there. I mean, give a funny barber. And so forth. And then suddenly somebody said, Hey, give us wee Willie McGinty. And a voice from the other end of the stage said, Nick, you're not going to impersonate me. No on that stage. <laughs> I mean, I, I've, I've never gone somewhere anywhere. <laughs> and of course, you, you mustn't overrun your time. And Carol walked on to take me off. <coughs> and, um, and, and so, um, and then somebody at the back said, Hey, he, you big Jesse, the lad hasn't a finish. Let him have his time. You don't argue with a Glasgow Empire audience. <laughs> So he said, all right, Winston Churchill, finished. And then Carol came and sort of gently took me off in the middle of the impersonation. But it was a, mm. it was a memorable evening. So yeah, it's, it's just the graveyard of English comedians. But I have mm. a theory professionally about that, because I think they were very conceited. I mean, when I was up here, I mean, we had um, Dave Willis and Jack Radcliffe and, uh, and of course, uh, Tommy Morgan, Clarty Clarty at the Metropole. I mean, Tommy didn't go anywhere outside Glasgow. He was so Glaswegian. But the others never travelled much further south than Newcastle. They didn't, you know, they thought, well, then it wouldn't be understood. But the English comics, you know, they'll go up there. Glasgow Empire, of course, yes. And, you know, and of course, you know, in those days you didn't have television, so people's ears weren't attuned to different dialects and voices. So you get the Cockney comedians coming up there, and they were going too slick, they couldn't be understood any more than the Glaswegian would be understood down in London. And they were dying of death. I mean, there were some English comedians like Rob Wilson, whom I saw there, but Rob was slow and measured. <coughs> you know, the day war broke out. You know, you remember that one? That was one of my impersonations. Uh, I said to the missus, I don't want to do it now because I'm only showing off if I do. But you see, those North Country comedians would be accepted, but the Cockney comedians, you know, Tommy Trinder came up and died to death. And they said it was a grave. Well, they couldn't understand a word he said. He was going, he, you know, their ears were not attuned to the Cockney accent. There's a famous, going, hmm? a famous story about Mike and Bernie Winters. Do you know oh, that yeah. one? Oh, yes, a lovely one. Yes. Do you want to tell that? <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know which one. I, they, 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 Mike came on first and was doing it and dying a death. And then his brother walks on to join him. He said, oh, my God, there's another one as well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's leave Glasgow. Let's head south, back to London. Mm. And you begin to get work very quickly in Western no, theatres. No, no, no. God, it was a struggle. Mm. Remember, I mean, I came back, my parents were very fair then. They did try mm. to stop me, actually. They mm. had one final effort. They, my father had a patient who was a literary agent. And uh, he said, my son wants to be an actor. It's a difficult world. She said, don't worry, I know all about the pressure. Send him to see me. So on some pretext, well, I was sent to see her. Name was Joan Ling. 
and um, she was one. And, and I talked to her, and I told her what I'd been doing up in Glasgow, and did my impersonations, made her aged mother laugh, and everything. And she felt, bless her heart, she said, I'm not going to discourage your son becoming an actor, I'm going to encourage him. And bless her heart, she gave me introductions. Uh, but you see, you no, know, it was a hard, hard struggle. I had a few contacts up in Scotland, nothing in London, but I was determined I was going to be an actor. So I knocked on every door, I took a copy of the stage, saw where the adverts were, I went and wrote letters and so forth. You know, one little job leads to another. And I'm a great believer, as I've said to other young people starting, I said, you know, work breeds work. Never turn a job down because there's not enough money or the billing's not right. Do it! You never know who's going to be in the audience. And who might mention again? And slowly, bit by bit by bit, you get a little bit more advanced, a little bit more advanced, and eventually, you know, you get far advanced and it takes off. Mm. Now, I must ask you about a man with whom you worked mm. very happily for mm. many years, but who I think is almost completely forgotten now, and that is Arthur Haynes. Yes. Uh, who was a big star in his day, but whether the nothing, nothing's been recorded or preserved. Mm -hmm. But how did that come about? How did you come to well, work with him? Well, um, that was, uh, this, the, the slow progression I was talking finished up with me working with Haynes, and that's really what established me uh, as a name with the general public. And like a lot of things in show business, the most unlikely things turn into big successes. And it was the beginning of independent television in, in 19... Um, 55? 55. 54 was the bill was passed. Mm -hmm. And then in 55, uh, George Black Jr., who was the son of George Black, who presented the amazing show during the war called Strike a New Note, which discovered Sid Field and Terry Thomas and Zoe Gale and others, said that he was going to present a new show on independent television, that's what it was called then, called Strike a New Note. And he was going to discover, the actual phrase used was the new and unknown stars of independent television. And I desperately wanted to be one of those selected. It wasn't to happen. And um, I watched the show when it first went out in January 1955, and it was absolutely terrible. There was one person in it, and I said, I'm going to say to my wife, and I said, Look, that chap there with the moustache, his name is Arthur Haynes. He used to be with Charlie Chester. Now, he's got talent, but the show's rubbish. And the following week, I happened to see it again. It was even worse. And the following morning, my agent phoned me and said, have you seen a show called Strike a New Note? And I said, isn't it absolutely pathetic? He said, they want you to join it. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, when do I start? <laughs> we don't argue in show business. And he said, today. And not that I think they thought I could save the show, but I might add a little bit of extra color to it. And I did a sh character that Arthur played then called Oscar Pennyfeather, which he mimed to my voice, which was the best thing in the show. And after six shows, I mean, nowadays, of course, the show would have come off straight away. But in those days, they had nothing to replace it. So it staggered on to its bigger disaster. And after six shows, George Black said, right, I'm going to change everything. I'm going to call the show Get Happy. I'm going to, I'm going to keep Arthur Haynes and you, and I think you should do sketches together. And so we got sketches from all the young, aspiring comedy writers of the time, um, one of whom was called Johnny Spate. Mm -hmm. And we thought, basically, his sketches were usually the best. So we did these sketches, and it, was very, it wasn't successful, but it turned into a modest success. And uh, <coughs> at the end of the, in the spring, he said goodbye, and we thought it was the end. <coughs> and then that autumn, Arthur phoned me up and said, um, they want me to do a spot in a variety show called Star Time. And I don't want to expose my one-man stage show, so I thought we might do a sketch together. I said, wonderful idea, I love it. He said, I think we'll get that chap Johnny Spate. He was the best, wasn't he? I said, oh, absolutely wonderful. So Johnny Spate wrote a sketch for the two of us, and he was very successful. So we got another slot on Star Time, then another slot on Star Time, and then his agents, who were also associated with ATV, decided to give him his own series. Mind you, if my agent had been on the ball, he would have said, oh, yes, that's a good idea, but I think you should call it Haynes and Parsons. But um, I, I wasn't fussy. I had a young family then. I was lovely to be working. And so the Arthur Haynes show started. And again, in order to have a success, we were lucky. We started late at night, off-peak, about 10, 10.30. And one of the reasons was that Al Val Parnell wanted to promote a certain singer called Aileen Cochran, who wasn't highly talented, but he wanted to push her. And so we, she was built into the show. And slowly people began to talk about this, this show at 10.30, very funny. And so then it slowly evolved. 
and we went to the peak hour for comedy shows in those days, which was 8 o'clock. And it took off, and from then on, it, you know, it just became incredibly successful, the most successful comedy show in independent television. We, we did summer seasons together. We, we, we did a wonderful season at London Palladium called Swing Along. It's in the book. There's a picture mm. of it, by the way. Uh, mm. Yes, there's lots in the of, book. There's, there's pictures mm. of Arthur Haynes in the book. There's one on the back of the book, isn't there? Of Arthur. Of Arthur as well. Yes, one of me. Oh, Arthur. yes, there he is. There a wonderful is. sketch of me and the, and the, and the tramp mm. and, uh, and, and so forth. And then uh, I like the back of the book because there I've got the, a great comedian I work with there. And at the bottom, I've got another great comedian I work with a lot, Paul Merton. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that got a recognition. Uh, yeah, it got a recognition. Not much, though, was it? <laughs> and um, so he told them we went to America. We went on the, the uh, Ed Sullivan show and, uh, until Arthur thought I was getting a little bit too much attention. So he decided that we should part. Did it quite amicably. But, uh, and, and the sad thing is I took off. So the, show, the partnership broke up. I got cast in the West End in a, in a comedy called Boeing, Boeing. And it, I took over from Leslie Phillips. It suddenly took off. I did 15 months starring in the West End, my only name above the show, of the title of the, of the show. And um, Arthur, I'm afraid, took on somebody else who was well known. But the public get used to a certain relationship. It didn't have the same magic. And the next series he did went, ooh, like that. Then he went back to Blackpool, where we had broken the box office records a few years previously. And that went, ooh. And then they decided that he should do a storyline. And, um, and they got it all wrong. Dickie Lehman, who was the producer, who produced our show, said, he told me afterwards, he said, they just didn't understand it. They got him to work with a woman, which wasn't ideal, Joan Sims, who was brilliant. Mm -hmm. And um, they got another writer in. Johnny Spate was his natural writer. Johnny Spate really was what Arthur Express, Johnny Spate, created. And, um, and, and he obviously was very tense about it came down one morning, he had one heart attack when we were at the Palladium. Got a second heart attack and died. He was only 52. Mm. Very, very sad. I don't want to get miserable now. Let's no, well, let's let's about, I'd like to ask about your working with Benny Hill, who's oh, yes. a comedian I think is much undervalued. I mean, I suppose towards the end... Only, in, only, in, only in this country. Yes, I mean, not, not in America, no. certainly, but who was wonderfully inventive as... A, wonderful, a, wonderful. A, a comedian. So I've written a whole chapter in that book <laughs> about comedians. Yes, no. Because I've worked with more comedians, Everyone. living and dead, than probably anybody. I know them. I love them. They're all different personalities. Some of them are very fragile. Some are very sensitive. Some are very difficult, and so forth. And <laughs> I mentioned Benny, of course, as one of them. Now, Benny was one of these comedians who's typical. They don't like anybody else getting the laughs. They like to dominate. Benny was very sweet. He didn't mind. Arthur, Arthur was very generous. He never mind if I got a laugh on character, but he as a comic had the gag lines. Fair enough. It was the sort of role of the comic and the straight man. Uh, Benny didn't like me getting laughs, but he was an absolutely charming, sweet, lovable man. And we, we did get on very well. I, I, I really loved him dearly. He, he had such a natural warmth. But if I said got a laugh on character, he did it so sweet, he said, Nicky, naughty, naughty. Just send the line, dear boy. Don't go for the laugh. <laughs> and, uh, but you never mind it, because he did it so sweet. And, but, but I was so sad about Benny when he died, because I mean, he, no comedians had more success in these four shows. I mean, his shows were incredibly successful in America. They're still shown around the world. I get little mini repeat fees from all over the places, Nigeria, the Sudan, God knows where, because everybody still loves these great shows. But they're not shown in this country because somebody decided that some of his humour was not politically correct. It was it was feminist. Was the word feminist or anti-feminist? Anti-feminist. But Benny loved women, adored them, and of course, and actually, really, what he was, he was he was a bit ageist, like we all are. I mean, I mean, nowadays we in an ageist society, you make jokes about age, and you're supposed to laugh. I mean, they make jokes on just a minute about my age all the bloody time, don't they? <laughs> And I'm anyway, but I do laugh. But the thing is that uh, Benny never understood it. And when Thames Television decided not to renew his contract, he couldn't understand it. And he was desolate. And he had a slight problem about eating. He ballooned very rapidly with food. And he started eating too much. And perhaps he had a few drinks. And then he, his heart couldn't cope with it. And he died. And to me, it's one of the saddest things because he was 
a hugely popular British comedian. He came with a tradition of music hall and seaside postcards, you know, the old-fashioned variety thing. And, and I think a lot of people loved his humour. Did you love him or did you late this like him? Yes. Well, a few did anyway. But <laughs> <laughs> well, what's so yeah. wonderful about you, Nicholas, is that you've worked with the kind of variety background mm. comics and now you're working with the stand-up variety. Have comics changed with the, with the, gen yeah. with the generations or are they still as quirky and... Bizarre and well, read the book. It's, um, it's I have a, done a whole chapter. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think to be a comedian requires a special character and a special quality. And I said before, but I'm repeating, they're all different, and, and some of them are lovely and easy, and they all have. The, I'll tell you one thing: most comics have they have great difficulty parting with money. Mm. And uh, I mean, the, the Ken Dodd, he put it under the bed, and. Um, there's wonderful stories in the book about Max Miller, who never bought a drink for anybody, and Tommy Cooper. I mean, mm. love Tommy. We all loved him inside the profession. Last day. My mm. favourite comedian. Lovely man. He never put his hand in his pocket for anybody. <laughs> there's one apocryphal story I put there. I don't know if it's true or not. Tommy Cooper got out of a taxi once, and he, he paid the taxi driver off, and then he put a little thing in, in the taxi driver's top pocket. He said, have a drink on me. It was a tea bag. I knew Tommy well. He was, he was absolutely adorable. He used to come around when I was at the Palladium and see me. And he knew I'd usually have a bottle there in case any guests came. And as soon as he put his nose around the door, he said, where is it? 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 And um, the, the, the thing is, he really had hollow legs. He was, he was just naturally funny. You know, he, he had this lugubrious manner, big fellow, huge size, great feet, and so forth. And uh, he had a wonderful way of getting a drink. I met him once in a pub, and he said, Nick! Lovely to see you. You can have a drink. I said, that's a lovely idea, Tommy. What are you drinking? He said, I'm drinking scotch. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's a good trick. Try it. Now, I must ask about Just a Minute, which yes. has been going, mm. what, now, coming up for 43 years. Coming up? It's arrived. 43 years. Yes. Mm. What's, I mean, I suppose you, people have asked you this question, mm. so I'm no claim for originality, mm. but why do you think it's lasted so long, so many years? In show business, if you really know why something succeeded, you probably, uh, well, you must be a genius. There's, there's some ingredient that appeals to the public. I mean, the shows that take off in the West End or wherever, why do they become more popular and successful than others? There's something there that appeals to the public. They relate to it in some way. Just a minute, it's an incredible idea by Ian Messiters. And within the concept, we've been able to have a lot of fun. Now, I take a bit of credit for having helped to evolve it. Because when it first began, it was successful and popular because we had four great people in. Kenneth Williams, uh, who will always be popular, Peter Jones, Derek Nimmer, and Clement Freud. And, you know, but it did get a bit predictable because it was the four people, um, you know, just showing off their humour and erudition. And... Uh, Latterly, I realized that if we were going to have a longevity, we had to change it a bit. And then others came in. The first one of the new generation of comedians coming in was Paul Merton. And I had some influence there, because I don't cast it, the producer does. And um, he came in, and he was brilliant, because it's such a difficult game that the first time anybody plays it, even if they've got all the talent and the skill to play it well, they're not going to succeed very well on the first one. Paul was amazing. And the producer immediately asked him back for others. He replaced the Kenneth Williams. And slowly other old comedians came in. And now we have four different wonderful performers playing, and we spark each other off. I say what I try to do in my position is to generate fun. And I don't believe there's quite enough fun in the world today. And fun doesn't mean big laughs. It means enjoying yourself. And we enjoy ourselves. And and, and Paul is a wonderful example of how to play the game because he's brilliant at it, but he's also very generous. I mean, if he starts to dominate any time, he'll hold back and let others have a go. And then when he gets in, if it's going a bit flat, he'll lift it up. But by sparking each other off in that way, we've uh, managed I mean, sort of little things I've instituted was originally it was uh, hesitation, repetition, or deviation from the subject. Well, I changed that to deviation. So if somebody wanted to challenge and come out with a funny line, 
She said it was devious. Gets a big laugh. I can say, yes, that was marvellous. Bonus point to you, but he was interrupted. He gets a point, carries on. So your little things like that, and then, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt and things like this. So you slowly, if anything's going to achieve longevity, you have to slowly polish it and hone it. And I think we've done that in a way. And it does go on. We did two up here at the Pleasant Grand, and it was absolutely amazing. And we found somebody else who plays it well, because really you, you have a nucleus now of regulars who are skilled and play it. And it is such a difficult game to talk without those hesitation, repetition, or deviation, and be amusing and entertaining is extremely difficult. And uh, we know that what you need to have is three people who uh, can play the game well. And if you introduce somebody new, you must make sure you've got three regular players there. And uh, these two shows a wonderful example. We had John Bishop on. And John was my guest on the Happy Hour tonight in the tenure. And uh, I first saw John. I don't know if I could guess him. But anyway, John came on. Now, John loved the show. Apparently, he'd been following it like Paul did years ago. And he came on, and he was immediately successful. And it was wonderful, because we didn't have to nurse him. Because sometimes somebody comes on, and they're struggling, like John Sargent was, if you heard that one recently. <laughs> I mean, it was utterly embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, bless his heart. We were all sending him up, and he didn't know it. Uh, and, I mean, Paul Merton at one point, which got a big laugh, going to fill asleep on the desk like that. <laughs> and then somebody challenged me and said, well, was it a good challenge? I said, I don't know. I wasn't listening. I mean, <laughs> and bless his heart, he's a lovely, lovely man. But he didn't know that he was actually being sent up. It, it, but it, it worked. You, this is it. You can, in my position, I can manipulate the show so that, you know, you can make somebody who is not really, who's struggling, and uh, look as if he's not. And that's what I try to do sometimes. Right. And it goes on and on. And we've got the uh, Just a Classic Minute comes out, and it goes on. It's been around the world. And Do you enjoy it? Yes. Good. Go on listening, please. <laughs> oh, there's a chapter in the book, by the way. Oh, about just a minute. what a surprise. And there's a whole chapter about Just a Minute, how it evolved and how it had gone like that. And also, what I've done, there's a chap who runs the, the website. And I got in touch with him. And I said, can you give me some classic moments? And he gave me all, actually, actually, he gave me enough for a whole book. Because um, mm. he's got everything on tape. And he sent me three or four, and I've chosen three or four, which sort of classic, they're mostly Paul Merton putting me down. I mean, there was one moment when I said to Paul, I said, Paul, what are you writing? He said, it's a will. All you have to do is sign it before you leave. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, let's and have the, oh, No, sorry. but, but, but we, we, we have such a lovely, Friendship and relationship. I mean, I mean, they, 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 we put a subject in because I was going up next day to the palace to get my OBE, and he, he came out. He said, Nicholas, I believe you're going to Buckingham Palace tomorrow, and you know. And I thought, oh, this is nice. Very kind of him. He said, I didn't know they were still looking for cleaners. <laughs> no. Cruel, cruel, cruel. No, no it wasn't cruel <laughs> no. because this is the whole thing about coming. Paul's got that great gift. I mean, this is a great gift for coming. He can have fun at my expense. Send me up. And I laugh and enjoy it. And that's, you know, and everybody laughs with you. You know, it, it, you, you, this is the thing about, you know, we are a bit of an ageist society. And, uh, but the point is that you, you have fun. You're supposed to laugh if someone makes a joke about your age and so forth. And, uh, but, but it is the ability to laugh at yourself, which makes it all work. But that was, he, he knew what he was saying. He knew I wouldn't mind. I knew it would be a good laugh, laugh with them, and the audience laughed as well. Great. And let's have the house lights up. Why? Because we're going to have a Q&A with our ladies and gentlemen in the audience, mm -hmm. Nicholas. We have two microphones at either end, and who's going to be the first to ask a question? Yes, there we are. Here comes the microphone, sir. Nicholas, thank you very much for all your work over the years. We've very much enjoyed what you've done. Not at all. I did, especially done. for you. <laughs> And we very much uh, enjoy. Could you put the microphone a bit closer to your mouth? That's better. I'm not used to this. You see. I know you're not. <laughs> That's why I was trying to help you. Thank you. <laughs> always helpful to everyone. Thank you very much for just a minute. We always switch it on. We, we very much, as you say, sense of fun is a great thing, so we switch it on. One thing I was, um, one, one thing I wanted to ask was, you've had struggles in your life and uh, you know your career and so on over the years, uh, and you also. Um, I've uh, worked with people who unfortunately have had a 
rather disappointing or earlier demise than, than you would like them to have had. Um, have you do read you have the book a, as well? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Do you have a secret for long life? Ah. What's your secret for long life? Just keep working. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't, you don't think about those things. You just apply yourself. You accept what life gives you. I mean, I was on Steve Wright's radio show recently, and Steve said something similar to what you said. I mean, he said so many people in your profession have sort of fallen by the wayside. Either their talent rang out, or they went on to drugs or drink or something. But you're still going strong. And I said, well, I had this early life on Clydebank, working with some of the toughest characters in the world, trying to survive in the most unusual environment for someone from my background. And I came through it. And something keeps you moving and going and adapting and relating. And if you have that, then nothing after that, and you can survive that, it seems too much of a challenge. So you just have to be yourself, embrace others as they are, take the knocks, you know, the, thing, you know, the old saw, you know, if something goes not as well as you hoped, you know, get up, dust yourself down, get on with them like the old song. There's no secret. There's no secret at all. It's just keep on applying yourself, keep trying, keep pursuing it, uh, you know, keep being as professional as you can. And maybe the answer is this. I've met performers, and I think I put it in the book, I'm not sure, <laughs> who, who get complacent. They've got, had a success, and they think that's it. And they walk out, no matter whether it's a play, I've seen it in plays particularly, they think that's it, and they walk out, and they just think they can do it because they're, 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 the audience now love them and know them. And they, they become complacent. Their performance becomes mechanical. And then they, they don't know why they're not being employed. I go out every time I do a show as if this could be the first show I've done. Because I always wanted to be an actor, and I never thought I would make it. So every show, that's the only advice I give to be, treat it as if it's the first performance. Give your best. It may work, it may not. But if you go out with that attitude, and, and that must be a very good attitude to have in life. Do always do the best you can, and maybe it'll help, it'll work. It sounds very pompous, but I mean, sorry, that's all I can say. No, if, I had, if I had another whiskey, I'd get even more pompous. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, any other? Yes, a hand over here. Mm. Here comes the mic. Have to keep your hand up. And then pass the mic along. Thank you very he point, much. He pointed at you, and the mic went over there. <laughs> Do you find it different, and if so, in what way, when you're in front of a live audience, in, instead of, for instance, being on a film set with just the crew there being deadly quiet? Yes. Well, I and haven't had to strip off in front of the camera <laughs> yet, but um, um, no, you know, it's, um, it's a question that um, obviously people think about if they're not in the business, but. The way I look at it is that every job, I mean, I've done so many different things. And my attitude is, it's a different discipline. So working in the theater, in a play, is a different discipline to working as a solo performer. Working in the cinema is a different discipline to working in television. In television, the cameras are there, and the audiences may be beyond them. Uh, in, in the cinema, the camera's there, the audience is just behind them. And you have to learn how to acquire the different disciplines for whatever job you're involved. Now, a lot of people in our profession don't seem to have this particular talent. I learned it early on, when, and it's in the book, by the way. Um, <laughs> when I was doing one of my early films with Roy Bolting, who was a wonderful, nowadays, directors don't give you direction. They just mechanically make sure it all technically looks right and hope that you've got enough talent to do the job. And it was, it's called, um, was happy as the bride. And there's a picture there as well of them all. And I came on, I've been doing a lot of work in the theater. And I had a nice little part. And I had a big scene. I came on, did it. And, uh, uh, and not all directors are like this. And Roy finished his cut. He said, took me aside. He said, Nicholas, he said, that was very good. I enjoyed the interpretation. It was super. But he said, you've been working a lot in the theater where you've been playing to the back of the dress circle. Now he said, we're going to do another take now, 
I want you to do exactly the same, but remember, your audience is just behind that camera. And that was a huge lesson. And, and it was very creative of him, and I, I learned a lot. Because not every director can help you and interpret things like that. Does that answer your question? Yes, oh, tell line. us about your live audience experience. Well, I mean, if you've got a live audience, you play to them, as I'm mm. playing to you now. So if you respond, mm. I, I react and comment. Um, I mean, there's a different technique playing in the theatre as to playing on television. You, you, you adapt your... You use your talent and adapt your technique for the medium in which you're working. I mean, I could give you a long dissertation about acting, which would be utterly boring to most people, but I, I, I mean, I don't think we've come here for that. Does that help at all? <laughs> Good. Now, did you say there was a man with his hand? Yes, yes here we are. Second. Here, here comes the mic. Come on. Quick, quick. Up sticks. Mm. Keep your hand up, sir. There we are. Thank you. Mm. Oh. Do, you, do you have any really funny stories about your experiences with a Glasgow landlady, you being about 17, <laughs> maybe 18? Interpret it any way you like. My, my best <laughs> landlady stories are do when I was touring in plays and we had um, wonderful theatrical landladies. And some of them were r amazing and wonderful. The, the Glasgow one, I was in Roxburgh Street in, off Byers Road and, and they, they had lots of mice there. And I, they used to come out at night and I could hear them running around the room. I don't know. I think she enjoyed the mice. But the, the, the theatrical landlady stories, which are not in the book, unfortunately, they were in my autobiography. I mean, there was um, uh, one famous one, I don't know if I can remember it, um, um, where, where she shows you the difference. She, she had a, oh yes, that was, uh, um, she said, oh, she said, right, now she said, uh, do be very careful uh, outside you have the lavatory. And she said, what you have to do is very difficult. Don't just pull it. Surprise it. And then it <laughs> Another one said, no, there's no toilet facilities on the top floor, but there is a chamber under the bed. So do this. But please, when you're finished, don't put it back under the bed, because the steam rusts the springs. <laughs> Good evening, Nicholas. Thank you. Good evening, darling. <laughs> Good evening, darling. Yeah. I, was, I was interested to hear that you were born in Grantham. Yeah. As you probably know, the good citizens of Grantham have erected a statue to another famous person That's who was right. born there. Do you think they should erect a statue to you? If I said yes, it would sound utterly conceited and pompous, wouldn't it? No. No, Grantham has produced some amazing people. I mean, Isaac Newton was born in Grantham and Margaret Thatcher came from Grantham. The only thing I have from Grantham is my father was a doctor in a country practice there, and Margaret, Rob, uh, Margaret Thatcher was in Margaret Roberts, and the Roberts family were one of his patients. And a lot of people said that he actually brought young Margaret Roberts into this world. A lot of people think he should have shoved her back again. <laughs> <laughs> A <laughs> <coughs> little bit of controversy no, 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 there. No, no. Ben Elton would no, say. No, no, that is, that's, a, that's the comic using material to make a joke. But let's be fair, Margaret Thatcher, whether you agree with her politics or not, was an amazing woman. Absolutely amazing. And I'm glad that Grantham has honoured her. How, how would you like to be remembered, Nicholas? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was good fun. He was good fun. And there was a, now, um, more questions. Yes, a lady here in the third row, and then there's a gentleman next to you. What's next? What's next? Uh, I think we're going to have a drink outside. <laughs> and then we'll uh, have a wee thing. And, um, and my wife's just arrived up here. 
and she's seen my autobiography for the first time. <laughs> and it's dedicated to her because, I mean, without Annie, I couldn't achieve half the things I do. She's been amazing. And she's my second wife. I had one wife for 25 years. I've had Annie for 25 years. And I thought maybe when we celebrate 50 years, we can have both wives together. I don't know. <laughs> But, but uh, we all get on very well. And between us, we share nine grandchildren, which is tremendous Lovely. fun. And Annie's wonderful because she keeps a note of all the grandchildren's birthdays and so forth. So we make sure that we get in touch. Because, I mean, it's terribly important. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm always being close to my children and to all my grandchildren. They're such fun. I adore talking to little children because I love the way... Because I do a program, a show, about Edward Lear, the great nonsense poet. And he loved children. And he wrote this wonderful, fantastical nonsense. Well, he called it Fantastical Rhymes Without Reason, which became his nonsense. And because he was able to enter into the mind of the child, because children, small children, live a great deal of their lives in their own created fantasy world. And I do the show, I tell his life story, which is absolutely incredible. How he survived is amazing. And I relate his nonsense to his life, illustrating, hopefully, that maybe it was only his own escapist world. I don't know where I'm going with this. I've forgotten why you were saying Well, we're talking about children. Oh, children, yes. So I love, I love talking to children because children can come up with the most fantastical things and, and say things to you. And, 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 and I relate it to my own children. Well, and, and there's a little story in the book here. One, one of my little grandchildren, uh, Lara, I mean, I tell her bedside stories when I see them. I, I wish I could see them more often. And, um, and, and she's obviously got a very inventive mind, which I love to encourage. Because she always demands more stories. She's very demanding. She's, she's quite bright. And after I've told her about three stories, and she's like, another one, she suddenly says, Papa, I'm going to tell you a story. And she goes into complete and utter rubbish. <laughs> she said, and then this man came along, and, he was there, and there was a great big ball and so forth. And we walked in the garden. I was on my bicycle. And then this happened. I laughed and thinking. We had porridge afterwards. And there was a, and I think it's gorgeous. <laughs> it's imagination going wild. And this is what children do, and you should encourage it. Because the more they use their imagination, nowadays they've got television all the time. I mean, we didn't have it. We went out and made up our own games. And it's wonderful to see a child using imagination like that. And I think it's absolutely fabulous. Good. Now, there's a gentleman at the end of the road being very patient. Yes, sir? Uh, Nicholas, somebody's got to say it. From Norwich, it's the quiz of the week. It's the sale of the century. Do you have any particular funny memories from that show? Well, people often ask that, you know, this is again, it's the thing about that man over there, discipline. I'd never done a quiz show before, and I took on board what was required, the discipline required to run a quiz show, and I ran it in a certain way. And it worked, because it took off, it became successful. Unfortunately, it was so successful, I've now been labelled with Sale of the Century to the expense, people remember that, to the exclusion of all the more interesting, creative and talented things I've done. And one thing is that when you're doing a quiz show, uh, you're with general public who've never been on television before. And the whole skill is to try and make them feel as much at ease as possible so that they will not be inhibited, otherwise they forget and they can't contribute. As like a game show where, you know, if something goes wrong, you capitalize on it and we have fun and so forth. But there was one classic moment in just a minute, as I say of the century, when the woman, I asked a very simple question. I said, um, according to the proverb, what should you not do if you live in a glass house? And she pressed her buzzer and said, take a bath. <laughs> now, if that was a, a quiz show like just a minute, we would capitalize on that and gag about it for ages. <laughs> but you know, I had to say, I'm terribly sorry, darling, it's the wrong answer. I've got to take the money away from you. And um, we carried on from there. Hmm. Thank you very much. Now, some questions from over here, perhaps? Any hands up? No, what about over here? Oh, yes, just behind you there, in the second row. I seem to remember that you had some dancing skills. I had some what? Dancing, dancing skills. skills. Uh, did I? And uh, so, quite appropriately, can you still do the time warp? Oh, that, that sort of dancing skills, yes! He's referring to the Rocky Horror Show. Anybody see the Rocky Horror Show? Right. Did I do it in Edinburgh? I've forgotten. Because I did it in the London for two seasons. And, uh, and of course, as the narrator, which is the character I play, I, I led the time warp. 
In fact, yes, there's a show I'm doing around the country at the moment. I keep forgetting all the things I'm doing. It's mm -hmm. called Masters of the House, in which I host and combat a show in which four top singers of all appeared in the West End sing the top songs from the top shows. And then when I joined them, they said, well, Nicholas, when you um, uh, do, you must bring through one of your songs, what can you do? And I said, well, I'm not a singer, but could we do the time warp? So we do the time warp, actually. The show's coming to Dunfermline, by the way, and it's coming to, uh, and to Dundee, uh, later in the year, you might look out for Masters of the House. You couldn't care less, could you? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're just, they're looking forward to seeing you do the time warp, I think. Well, they're I'm not going to get up and do the time warp now. I suppose it was memorable, the, 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 the thing, because I introduced a gimmick in that uh, when I took over the role of the narrator, because uh, he, he's dressed in a beautiful crushed velvet jacket and he's very formally dressed and he comes on and, you know, he, he um, links some of the scenes and he takes part in some of the scenes. And up to the time I did it, the narrator was always treated as an object of pomposity and so forth. And the fans all shout out certain suggestive things all the time. But when the narrator came on, they all shouted, boring, 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 piss off, get off, get off, boring, boring. And I've been on a lot of stand-up comedy and so forth. Well, I wasn't going to be insulted like that. So I started um, improvising with them for the first uh, sequence. So I waited and then said, um, and, and, and my first lines were, I would like if I may. And then they, it's traditional that the audience, the regulars, all shout back, you may. Uh, thank you very much indeed. I would like if I may to take you. And, you know, and then I started saying, mind you, some of you, I couldn't take anywhere. <laughs> Others look as in sound as if you've been taken already. <laughs> and I went on gagging with them like this, and they suddenly stopped shouting out the boring. And they started thinking of different things so I could joke and gag with them. And, uh, I mean, one of the things that really appealed to them was I said, uh, at one point I said, uh, it seems a very ordinary night when um, Brad Majors, that's the hero fellow, um, and they all traditionally, the regulars, all shout out, asshole! Mm -hmm. And so I said, yes, well, that's the side of him I don't know very well. <laughs> and, uh, and so we uh, and this, uh, and it's very interesting about audiences, you know, once you've got them on your side, you can, you, you can play with them and since you can almost embarrass them. And this, this script went on and it said, and his, his, his fiancée, Janet Weiss, and they all shout out slut, because later on the show she is a bit of a slut. And, um, and then they said, on, met up with their old friend, Dr. Everett Scott. Now, as it turns out, he comes in later in the show and he has Nazi sympathies. And the, on some of the audiences, the regulars shout out, Zeke Heil, Zeke Heil, Zeke Heil. So I looked at that little group who was shouting it, and I said, you fascist bastards. <laughs> and they roared with laughter. Mm -hmm. And then I said, one night, I said, how did you get in? And they said, through the back door. <laughs> so I said, another household job. And then we are... <laughs> I don't know where we're going with this. It's getting quite rude. I, th I think we should, <laughs> I think we should but, move but, on, Smith, and ask for one final question. Who wants a question from over here? Yes, there we are, gentlemen there. We all know that the British Empire Medal is for courage. Mm. Do you think they should have had a Glasgow Empire Medal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's a lovely, lovely idea. I wish I put it in the book, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah, fantastic. I, I didn't require courage, because I told you my story. You know, I was, I was, I was privileged in that sense. But... Um, yeah, yeah, and may, maybe it would have been a very good idea, but, but I mean, the, the Glaswegians are proud of the fact that, I mean, they do have a great love of the arts, and they do embrace people who have talent. I mean, I mean, I mean the, the Scots do love the arts. I mean, Edinburgh's evidence of it. I mean, this festival is the greatest festival in the world. You know, and they all come here to, first of all, I mean, established players come here and perform because they know there's no place where you'll get this same audience and it's wonderful. And then you get the newcomers. Some of them go away out of pocket, but at least they've had the opportunity to display their talent and maybe be discovered and maybe move on to bigger and better things. And a lot of them are guested in my show at the beginning and uh, weren't known. I mean, one was, I mentioned John Bishop, who played to 12 people the first time I saw him. And now he's playing to two and a half thousand people. And it's wonderful. This is show business. It's the most difficult, frustrating, challenging, 
difficult world, uh, profession in the world. But when you see things like that, you get very excited. And maybe the, the medal should be given to those because it's a great idea. But, but I have a huge affection for Glasgow, great affection. I am partly Scottish, by the way. I've got Scottish ancestors. But I have this great love of things Scottish. And there is something special, not only about the country. There's something special about Edinburgh, which is evidence during the festival. And there's something even more special about Glasgow, because I love Glasgow because of Steady what... Steady on, Nicholas. <laughs> because of what Glasgow gave me. It gave me... I mean, Janie Godley, who's very Glaswegian and guest on my show, she came up with this lovely phrase when she guested on me. She said, born in England, made in Glasgow. <laughs> and that describes me. No. Ladies and gentlemen, it will probably come as a complete surprise to you to learn that Nicholas will be signing copies of his memoir, My Life in Comedy, in the signing area next door, which is out that door, turn left and left again, or that door, right and right again. Oh, Nicholas oh. is being... No, no, can I say before you go? Certainly. I see that you've written copious notes. Of course, and none of them have been the used, a complete waste of time. <laughs> Nicholas, it's been one of the happiest of ours. Ladies and gentlemen... I give you Mr. Nicholas Parsons. Thank you. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk along with a selection of videos.